Okay, so our first question. In my region, whenever the SDA church puts on an evangelistic campaign, they almost always have a series of fasting. I think the fasting services are designed to move the hearts of the non-Adventist visitors to get them to be baptized and, and um, bother their consciences until they do so. To me, that seems like mysticism, yes? Is there any truth to what they are doing? So I, uh, you're asking me to evaluate the motives of someone else for their actions. I have no idea. Fasting can be done, fasting is a behavior. It can be done because somebody wants to lose weight. It can be done because somebody's sick and their their stomach is upset. It can be done because somebody just had uh, the death of a loved one and and they're fasting because they can't because they're emotionally upset. It can be done because somebody believes that if they don't fast on a particular time of the year, they'll be punished by God. It could be done because somebody believes that it will earn them credit with God. It can be done because they want to have a clearer mind. I mean, fasting is just an action. Why somebody's doing fasting, I could never read the heart and mind. I would encourage you to ask the people that are doing the fasting at these times why they're doing it. What are they trying to achieve? And let them explain that to you. And then we can go from there and discuss what they said their motives are, or what their reasons are, and see if that has any legitimacy to it. Did Ellen White always write under Holy Spirit's inspiration? And if not, how should we know what was inspired and what was not? Also, she did, did she ever change her views on matters of doctrines? And if she did, which ones? So let's take the first. Uh, you know, I never get in arguments about this with people because my Bible tells me that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. That's true for every human being. Whether they have a special gift of prophecy or don't have a gift of prophecy, uh, whether they're a true prophet, false prophet, or lay person, anybody who is discerning spiritual truth and communicating that spiritual truth are only able to do it if the Holy Spirit enlightens them to do it. Yes or no? So when I read things, I'm always comparing it with the standard, the Bible. Ellen White herself advocated affirmatively that all of her writings must be compared with Scripture, and Scripture alone is our source of faith and our creed. So Scripture is our standard. Anything she wrote must be compared with Scripture. So I never get into the whole question about that. But, but no Bible writer wrote everything under the Spirit's inspiration. When Ellen Wright made her grocery lists, she was writing. I'm going to make the argument that was not under the inspiration of the Spirit. Pardon? If she wrote a, if she happened to write a letter to her children or her husband as a mother does, I'm going to suggest not all those letters were coming from inspiration of the Spirit in the sense that the, the questioner means. They will still come from someone who has inspired wisdom as a child of God, as all people um, who have experienced the Holy Spirit enlightening their minds do. We, we are all growing. And so then the next question, did she ever change her views? Well, any person who is growing in their spiritual understanding, do they change their views? Yes. Of course they do. They're constantly changing. If you're not changing, you're dead. <laughs> That's true. We're always changing. So um, I think these questions, um, you know, can, I don't think these questions necessarily mean anything negative. I think people want to ask questions like this because when it comes to, to the writings of Ellen White and the Adventist Church, what I've discovered is that the vast majority of people who value them, and you'll, you'll find generally two big camps, people who value them 
people who don't value them. Those are the two big camps. Mm-hmm. And within the camp that values them, they value them because she's done all the thinking for us and we don't have to think. If I can find an Ellen White statement and she said this and that and the other thing, then that's all there is to it. And I can feel safe because I'm following what Sister White said to do. And then those who don't value them, well, she said something I didn't like and it goes against the way I want to live my life and it offends me. So I don't really think she was inspired anyway, so I'm not going to do it. And they're both really reacting to the same way to the writing that somehow she's an authority that you have to either, if you value her, you have to agree with it. And the only way to get around it is to not value her. I think both missed the point. Paul, who was an inspired source, writing to the Romans about things of religion, including Sabbath days in Romans 14 said, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. And he wrote, and so the point being is that Regardless of whether you're reading Ellen White, Max Licato, Billy Graham, or Bible, at the end of the day, you're required to weigh the evidences and come to your own conclusions. And no matter who's writing, you have to compare that with Scripture because Scripture is the standard. That's my point. Yes? I'm thinking that a huge root part of the problem that we're facing when we face spiritual issues or when we face authority issues is that just like Paul said not to do, we love to compare ourselves among ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we, we get into this, this uh, circle of, of sort of looking at each other and, and, and saying what we think you should have or what you should do or, you know, how we're trying to judge other people by some of these, by some of these things. And naturally, they become arbitrary judgments. From, mm-hmm. but and so somehow we, because of our authority, because of our education or whatever, and I'm sorry I'm expanding on this, but the the idea is that we get the more education we get or the more experience we get, if we're a little older or whatever, we think we have the answers for you, and this is what the way it should be. And this is why I try to present principles, yeah. and what we try common reason is we we try to present the principles how God's design laws work, but we always are telling people that we want everybody to be fully persuaded in their own mind, and we don't know in every circumstance how those principles are to be applied in your specific life and circumstance. That's between you and the Holy Spirit to guide you into the application of the principles. And this is why we, we say we're not here to do your thinking for you. God has given you your own mind and reasoning ability, uh, but the principles never change. The applications of the principles will change depending on the circumstance. A parent who has genuine godly love for their child, that love for their child is always motivated to do what's in the best interest of the child, to build them up, to help them experience a godly development of character and eternal life. That's always motivated. Godly love is always motivated for that. And yet the behavior of the parent, the action of the parent will change depending on the circumstance. There might be timeout. There might be a spanking. There might be rewards. There might be praise. There might be a harsh talking to, depending on the circumstance. The behavior of the parent is constantly changing based on the need of the child. But the love and the motive and the principles are all, if you understand the, the principle of love, you'll see that every action is the outworking of the same principle. But rule keeping can't process that. Rule keeping, it's the rule must be enforced even if it's a violation of the principle. And this is why they wanted to stone Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. When he is applying the principle of healing and restoration, uh, to them he's breaking a rule and should be stoned. And that's that's the difference. Uh, You have said that bad things pain 
come either from Satan, stuff just happens, or from God disciplining. So I'm going to have to clarify the first sentence. You have, with the slash mark, equated bad things with pain. Those are not the same. Bad things, by definition, are not good things. They're bad things. Therapy, healing remedies, um, uh, interventions to restore and heal are good things that may have pain. So, okay, so, so you have to separate bad things from pain. Good things can sometimes be painful in circumstances that are necessary. So, so I'm going to separate bad things. So we'll say, let's just use pain then. You have some, said that pain can come from either. I can tell you, nothing bad ever comes from God. Nothing bad ever comes from God. Bad things can come from Satan, and bad things can come from stuff in this world because we live in a war zone and there's sin in the world. That's true. But bad things never come from God, and disciplining is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So we have to differentiate that. Is it reasonable to say that all the pain that just happens in, in the world is really a derivative of Satan's influence? In the larger landscape, of course, if there was no sin at all ever, there would be no pain uh, of any kind. Okay, so of course, there would be no sickness, there'd be no pain, there'd be no suffering. So of course, we can say in that context, it's all due to the fact that Satan has influenced creation to break away from God's design. And if any pain that won't happen, uh, and that any pain that won't happen in heaven is due to Satan's influence. No, even the pains that happen in heaven are due to Satan's influences. The, because, because I see the pains that happen in heaven when Jesus is wiping away our tears, they're the pains of grief and loss over the loved ones that didn't experience salvation, and that is still due to Satan's influence. So I don't think afterwards we're going to have actual pain in heaven uh, as we understand pain. I, I just don't think that's going to exist there. In 2016, I was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer by a urologist who treated me. My wife, he told my wife and I that I had six months to five years to live. I have gone through five different regimens of treatment with no success. My question is, what does hospice do? It seems to me that signing up for hospice would fly in the face of God's design law for a natural death. My oncologist suggested hospice for me. Several friends have suggested hospice. What is your stance on hospice? I am 80 years old and blessed. I think you may be confusing hospice with uh, euthanasia or more modern terminology, what's called medical assistance in dying. Those are not the same things. Hospice historically is end of life care that intervenes to the whole person, physical, mental, spiritual, to help you have the highest quality of dignity while the natural events of whatever it is that is ending your biological life is occurring. And they intervene with all types of supports and resources to minimize the, the disability in those last days, pain management, um, um, hospital beds or walkers or whatever other resources that you might need, visitation and support for family, counseling, prayer, chaplains, all types of resources that are beneficial at the end of life to help you process and your family process, frankly, through this very difficult time. So I would encourage you to sign up for hospice if that's the, 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 the circumstance. The difference, once you enter hospice, you also say, 
that we have accepted the natural consequences of what's happening and we're not going to do aggressive medical interventions to try to cure the cancer or overcome it now. We will let nature take its course, but we will use uh, professional interventions to mitigate the suffering and disability during that time. So I would encourage it, but don't confuse hospice with, with euthanasia or medical aid in dying, which is being advocated by some these days. And then some, uh, somebody else, a, hospital, a hospice social worker just commented and made very positive comments about the benefits of hospice and in supporting people at the end of life. So I thank you for that comment. At what age do you let a child go their own way, such as putting them on a drug rehab program versus letting them leave if they don't want to follow what you've taught them? <clears throat> so there, it has to, there's two elements here. One is capacity and accountability, and one is the culture in which we live and what's legal and what your responsibilities are. So in the United States, you have uh, parents have a legal responsibility to to provide and maintain some type of oversight for their children up until the age of 18, unless you've gone to court to have your child legally emancipated from you, at which time you no longer have parental responsibility. So at age 18, uh, up, up, age 18 is the minimum legal age if you're looking for legal um, ability. But then there's the question of capacity. And uh, people of age 18, 19, and 20 may have various mental handicaps where they don't have capacities to govern themselves in the full uh, extent of one's autonomy. And maybe you continue to provide oversight and support to those individuals. So you have to weigh those questions in. But let's say we have somebody over the age of 18 who does have mental understanding, capacity, and agency and ability to make decisions for themselves. Then it goes to willingness to cooperate. Are they struggling with a with a, an addiction that they want freedom from, but they haven't yet able to been achieve freedom from? And every time help is offered, they engage with the help, but then they relapse back, but they really want to be free and they're just struggling to get that freedom, then you stay engaged with them versus because the data shows that if you take people, 100 people with an addiction, really doesn't matter which addiction, and you put them in a 20-day rehab program, a certain percentage, I think it's about 20%, one in five, um, will actually, from the first treatment, have sobriety and maintain sobriety, but 80% relapse. And then if you take that 80% and put that 80% in another 28-day program, 20% of those on the second time through will uh, achieve sobriety. Uh, but if you take that 80% who failed, uh, and put them through a third time, another 20%. And every time you take the remainder and put them through another 20%, uh, get it. And this is up six, seven, eight, nine times through. So if you have somebody who is still recognizing the devastation of their addiction and, and just struggling and can't seem to, to get the resources, the strength, the, the habit patterns in, um, uh, coping strategies integrated to where they can maintain sobriety, but they want to, then you stay engaged and you keep helping, you keep helping. But if you have a child who's in rebellion, they're, no, they're in denial, no, uh, I, I can handle it no, I don't want to get over this, then you set them free to reap the consequences of their dysfunctional lifestyle because it's those consequences that actually lead them to the point to recognize it's not working. And that's the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son went off into wild living, the father did not send one of his agents to, uh, to follow the boy, put him up in a Motel 6 and send him pizza from Pizza Hut. He let him squander himself and his wealth away till he found himself living with the pigs. And it was in that state. And this is what addicts would call, tell you, is called hitting rock bottom. In that state, he came, it says he came to his senses and realized even the servants of my father's estate are better off than this. I will turn my life around and turning around, I will go home. He's made a change now. He's finally in his attitude, what ready to get well and the father then runs out and meets him. So you set them free to reap until they have that heart change that they're willing to engage the process 
of getting themselves well. And then you can bring resources to bear in their life again because they're motivated to get themselves well. Hope that helps. Thank you very much for the Power of Bible study. I wanted to ask you about fasting in Isaiah 1, 1 through 9. I had known fasting from people not eating from one time to another, various reasons. After reading the verse from Isaiah, I came to the conclusion that the description of Isaiah is the true fasting. What are your thoughts? Of course, the description on Isaiah, but fasting really is a form of self-denial. It's about gaining self-mastery. You can fast from lots of things. You can fast from electronics. And, and go through an electronics fast. You can fast, but but yes, Isaiah 58 is the ultimate fasting, which is fasting or denying the selfish indulgences and, and living God's principles in life. And um, one of the challenges that we have in this earthly body is that we have desires or cravings and we're trying to empower our spiritual nature to help self-mastery, the last fruit of the spirit. And so as fasting can be a spiritual exercise, the physical fasting from food to help us gain self-discipline or self-mastery, which is ultimately then carried out in living God's principles and not giving in to the, the, the carnal temptations. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and we ask that your spirit will empower us to live your principles and, and advance your kingdom in this world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.